0: Hello everyone. I wrote the script for this podcast episode yesterday before the distressing news that we've all woken up to. And it's one of my more light-hearted episodes. And so I thought about just ditching it because I'm not particularly in the mood for anything relatively light-hearted which deals with nuclear conflict. But then long-term listeners to this podcast will know that we often use black humor to approach this dreadful subject. And also, if the relatively light-hearted nature of this um, helps distract anyone from the miserable news today, then surely that's a good thing. So I thought, okay, just go ahead and record the thing. This week we're doing one of the spotlight episodes. This is when I go into my archives and fish out old copies of Protect and Survive Monthly, which is a very colourful civil defence magazine published in Britain in the early 1980s. And we look at their monthly spotlight section, which was a page of tiny snippets of civil defence and nuclear war related news from around the world. Today we're going back to the spotlight from the January 1982 issue. So let's kick off with something mildly amusing. I'll read you the little news report, and then we'll go in and examine it. Westminster, London. Home Office Minister of State Patrick Mayhew, speaking in the House of Commons, said that the UK could not provide shelters for all. But, he added, Her Majesty's Government believed that provided the UK retained its nuclear deterrent, the risk of a nuclear war was so slight that such comprehensive protection was not justified. Civil defence is common sense, he added. Maidstone Conservative MP Mr John Wells suggested that after a nuclear disaster, local council chief executives would be better replaced by sporting personalities, citing England sportsmen Kevin Keegan and Ian Botham. He recommended that they would be more suited to the task. The minister thought that the sporting personalities were best left in the sporting world. Now, we've talked before on this podcast about the absolute futility of nuclear shelters in a country like Britain. So let's zoom in instead on the, the Kevin Keegan and Ian Botham chat. Firstly, what exactly did this MP say about Kevin Beefy? Let's look it up in Hansard. A record of everything that's ever been said in the British Houses of Parliament. The MP said, Is my honourable and learned friend happy that after a disaster, the chief civil power should be in the hands of the chief executives of county councils and similar unelected and unknown non-entities? Would it not be much wiser if each county had at the head of its civil defence some well-known local figure? such as Mr. Ian Botham in Somerset, or Mr. Kevin Keegan in Southampton. Kevin Keegan and Ian Botham were, of course, big stars in the early 80s. Well, they're both still household names now, of course, but they were especially prominent in the early 80s, and they would have been familiar faces to almost everyone in Britain. Perhaps then it made sense to have your Local leaders, after nuclear war, be familiar, friendly, down-to-earth people, half-sportsman, half-celebrity. After all, there will surely be rage and resentment against authority in the aftermath of any such war. So those typical politicians in their suits might be best advised to stay in the bunker. Far better to send someone like Kevin Keegan out. Someone who's popular and known, but crucially is untainted. No survivor could hold Kevin Keegan or Ian Botham responsible for nuclear war. So maybe the suggestion, um, if we take it seriously, was driven by the elitism of thinking, well, the common people, the, the grubby survivors... They'll be able to relate to Kev or Beefy more so than some toff from Eton or a a grey civil servant. The hordes will be far more biddable if a familiar TV personality with, uh, in Kevin Keegan's case, a Yorkshire accent, a twinkly smile and a fabulous perm is issuing the orders. Yeah, far more biddable, far more likely to Cue quietly at the feeding centre if there's a chance of getting Kev's autograph with the bowl of watery stew. And and I'll tell you, honestly, I will love it if we beat them. Love it! Communication, of course, would be everything after nuclear war. For any type of national recovery, you would need a massive, massive clean-up operation. You will need people organised, rounded up, directed, sheltered, fed... You'll need resources properly allocated and transported. And none of that can be done without communication. So yes, a familiar and trusted voice dishing out all those orders and instructions could be useful. A voice the public know and recognise, like, and, as I said, who isn't tainted by being a recognisable authority figure. Someone in whom we could easily pin the blame of allowing the country to slide into war. But, (laughs) having Kevin Keegan in charge uh, could, maybe, have the exact opposite effect. People might think, why the bloody hell do I need to labour and slave and break my back? Because Kevin bloody Keegan says so. So I'm sure that the MP wasn't being entirely serious in 1981, when he suggested people like Kevin Keegan and Ian Boltham be put in charge of the regions after nuclear war. But there is a tiny shred of common sense to it. And that is, bring in someone new. Someone against whom the population can have no rage or resentment. Any other authority figure is going to be tainted. So maybe it should be Kevin Keegan. Maybe it should be your mum. Certainly there is some sense in bringing in a new face, unconnected to the political regime who went before and on whose watch, the war started. I suppose we even saw um, a version of that in Britain in 1945 when we dumped Churchill. There was the desire, now that the war was over, for a new start, a new face, a new leader. So whether you go for Clement or Kev, maybe it's just natural to the human psyche to want a fresh face. Okay, so let's turn to another snippet of news from 1981. Here's one from America. It says, Tennessee, USA. Residents of the small town of Soddy Daisy, overlooked by two nuclear reactors, have been issued with anti-fallout tablets, brackets, potassium iodide, by the local health department in case evacuation routes get blocked. The nuclear plant in question is the Sequoia Nuclear Plant which began operating in the summer of 1981. Of course, just a couple of years before that, in March 1979, Pennsylvania saw the Three Mile Island nuclear accident, a partial meltdown which was America's worst nuclear incident. So maybe that had uh, given people the jitters, or at least focused minds on what to do if and when things go wrong with the nuclear plant. So the newspapers from that time were reporting safety tests at the Sequoia plant and uh, reviews of evacuation procedures for the Soddy Daisy population. The New York Times tells me that 7,000 families living within five miles of the plant will be given the potassium iodine pills in case of a nuclear incident. The idea is that you take these pills immediately, and it basically tops up your thyroid with iodine, meaning that it can't absorb any more. So if radioactive iodine is being leaked from the plant, your thyroid can't take it in. So it gives you some kind of protection against thyroid cancer. This happened closer to home, of course. Ireland famously distributed iodine pills to its entire population in 2002. Of course, Ireland doesn't have nuclear weapons or nuclear power stations, But it's a big nuclear neighbour across the Irish Sea certainly does. And if something happened at Sellafield, for example, the wind could easily have taken a fallout across the Irish Sea. Iodine pills have never been distributed en masse in Britain, although the Home Office confirmed in the early 80s that some police stations held supplies. And that angered some anti-nuclear protesters who said that these are medicines. And so they should be held by local doctors, not local cops. Moving up to Northumberland, we have news from the town of Hexham. It says, Work has started on fitting out a World War II food and supplies depot as a sub-regional seat of government. The contract, believed to be in the region of £900,000, provides for the refurbishing of the building. Okay, I've got an episode in the archive for you about these big food buffer depots. It's called Willy Wonka's Nuclear Factories. These were uh, dotted around the country. uh, Huge, big, secure warehouses, basically, to store essential foodstuffs uh, to be distributed if war happened. The episode I refer to in the archive, it tells us how a bunch of kids broke into one in Yorkshire and were uh, no doubt delighted to find it was full of boxes of uh, biscuits and chocolate bars and they tucked in uh, only to make themselves violently ill because (laughs) the stuff had been stored there. Uh, I think the biscuits had been stored since the 60s and the chocolate since the 40s so they were gnawing on some stuff that was well past its use-by date and they all made themselves uh, horribly sick. Of course, the idea was these buffer depots, you stock them with food, but you have to then turn over the supply. You know, every few years when things go out of date, you clear it out and restock it. And with the stuff that's um, past its best, you use it for dog food or something. But the one in Yorkshire had been quite lax and they had stored up (laughs) mouldy, horrible biscuits and chocolate. And the local nippers made themselves very sick. So it was one of these buffer depots which was being uh, refurbished as a regional seat of government, perhaps one day to be led by Kevin Keegan. Well, no, a a local sportsman from Northumberland. Of course, it was never used. uh, So after the Cold War, the bunker was purchased and demolished in 1996. And now, if you look at it on Street View, it's currently a building site and the billboards say they have plans to turn it into a travel lodge and a Lidl. So, any uh, tourists who stay overnight at the Hexham Travel Lodge will be sleeping on the site of what used to be a nuclear bunker and before that, a massive food store during the Second World War. And then we have a strange snippet of news from Anglesey. I'll read it out to you. A disabled working men's workshop has been told by Gwynedd County Council, which in August declared itself a nuclear free zone, that they are to cease manufacture of crossbows because they are weapons of war. The workshop, which employs 24 disabled men, has been instructed not to order for the materials for manufacture of crossbows but may sell the remaining stock. Okay, we've looked at nuclear-free zones in previous episodes. You'll remember this was a trend in Britain in the early 80s, uh, started by Manchester, where left-wing councils would uh, declare themselves to be nuclear-free, meaning they were declaring their opposition to the possession of nuclear weapons, to the use of nuclear power, and they would refuse to take part in civil defence preparation and civil defence exercises. Now, as we've discussed in the past, they were legally obliged to make civil defence plans. So those who refused could find themselves um, well under the control of the Home Office. If you refused to do it, the Home Office could send uh, advisors up there to do it for you, basically, and charge you for the privilege. So that's what happened to some councils who refused. Um, others would go along with it, but they would drag their heels Um In some cases, uh, they would deliver civil defence plans of such horrifying and disturbing truth and reality that their very uh, completion was surely an act of rebellion and sabotage. But if uh, Gwynedd Council here were picking on some guys for crafting crossbows, then that does sound like uh, what we might today call virtue signalling. Besides crossbows are going to be useful after a nuclear war when we are hunting for food. So you could argue they are not an instrument of war but an instrument of post-war survival and recovery. You might like to know that a couple of days ago I recorded a bonus podcast for patrons about Ukraine and the nuclear weapons it inherited after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's just a short look at what they inherited and what happened to them. Here's a small clip from it. There was a short period in which Ukraine was a nuclear power. Not only that, but she was the world's third biggest nuclear power for a while, coming in after the USA and Russia. Of course, Ukraine became a nuclear power by default um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, when it dissolved into its 15 separate countries. Each found themselves with nuclear weapons on their soil. These had previously been, of course, Soviet weapons, but the Soviet Union had ceased to exist, famously lowering its red flag on Christmas Day, 1991. The news from ITN. Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union, resigns. The red flag of communism is lowered over the Kremlin. So that's there, ready to download on my Patreon site. If you sign up as a patron for £3 a month, you get access to all these bonus episodes. Uh, there are currently six of them there, ready to be downloaded. So please uh, take a look at patreon.com forward slash AtomicHobo if you wanted to sign up for that. And let me thank my newest patrons, Paul Griffiths and Ian MacDonald. Thank you both. And to my patron Anna Brotherton, just to let you know that your bookmark has arrived. It's been personalised for you, stamped with uh, little nuclear symbols and your name and I will be sending my husband to the post office with it at the weekend so thank you everyone for listening, remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell on Facebook as Nuclear Britain or on my website at juliemcdowell.com